You're listening to Q Marriage Mentors with Jeff Lutz, a podcast featuring conversations with remarkable lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender couples. What makes great relationships work? Jeff will ask the questions. You'll hear the answers. Together, we'll learn. Hey, everybody. Jeff here. Today, I visited the home of Della Nagel and Ruth Pinkham in San Antonio, Texas. Della and Ruth are both teachers, and they've been together 33 years. And get this, they have eight, that's right, eight children. And while I was there in their home, some of the grandchildren were asleep upstairs. The dog was trying to be quiet, but walked a little bit across the hardwood floor. So you're going to hear some sounds today. That's just the way it is in a home filled with love. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I was um, the camp director of a, a resident camp, and um, I needed to hire a waterfront director. And Della has been involved in water things, I think, since birth. So um, she was the best choice. And during that summer um, of hiring her, we fell in love. I didn't even realize I was gay. Until I met Ruth. I didn't realize that that was what I was looking for. She started out as a friend. But it was a friendship that I'd never really felt before. It was like she understood my soul. And um, there was nothing that I could say to her that she didn't go, Oh yeah, I understand that. Or um, I can see that as as a valid point. it just... She really got you. Oh, in ways that I never knew possible. Wow. We, um... Ruth hates to drive. She's always hated to drive. And I love to drive. And so when kids got sick at camp, we had to take them to the nearest town, which was about 45 minutes away. So since I like to drive, I always got to drive. And so we drove kids. And that time that we spent together was, you know... Without any distractions, it was just her and I in the car, driving a poor sick kid to and from camp. And so we spent a lot of time together. And she's right. She gets me. Sometimes I wonder how this happened because I didn't think that I deserved her. Say a little bit more about that. You didn't feel worthy of her? No. Um... We truly say that I was raised by the Adams family, and I was, and it was not pretty, and so I didn't think I deserved her, and I tried real hard to push her away, but she wouldn't go. In those early days, you really just tried to push her away and resist, sabotage the relationship? Right, because I knew it was going to end anyway, so, you know, if you end it yourself, then it's not so scary, but she didn't go. I appreciate you being so vulnerable and open with this. What what were the ways in which you tried to sabotage it? Oh, I told her I didn't love her. I told her that I didn't trust her. And I didn't. I mean, I was being honest. I didn't trust her. Because I didn't trust anybody. And so she just kind of wore me down. Until I did. Ruth, do you remember that? And what was that like on your end? I'm a fixer. And we both honestly admit that at the time, she was fairly broken. And, but I saw, I guess what diamond miners find. 
that that rock that you know is something special, you just have to make it that way. Um, I really felt like if I loved her enough, it'd be okay. She and, was right. <laughs> and I guess I did. I loved her enough and it's okay. Well, how long did it take? Oh, till last week. <laughs> <laughs> still a work in progress. Huh? I, I, I think we're still a work in progress. Um, in in our, our bad times, and there are always bad times, things that don't, you know, people get overtired, they get, you know, cranky, whatever. Um, it has always been her first inclination to run. Um, I don't run very far. <laughs> but that's always, you know... Um, your, your impulse is to yeah. just... Her, her, her to first go. impulse is, is, this is too hard. Um, and so... But it used to be she'd run off, run, run, go off in the car and be gone several hours. Now she goes to the front porch. <laughs> Quite a change. That's progress. Progress, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, so given that, at what point did you know that you were on solid enough ground to start raising a family because, wow, you have quite a story when it comes to family. So when did you know it was time to start? We started with two. I have two birth children um, from a... Started off healthy but got very unhealthy heterosexual relationship. Um, So in the beginning of our relationship, we always had kids. And then it was important to her to give birth. I needed my own child. Um, I had, in my bringing up, raised a lot of people's kids for them. And then, whatever. And then took them back. And so I wanted a kid that nobody could take. And so we went to the sperm bank. You did. And Ruth didn't want another child. She didn't want another child. We had two. The world was populated enough. Wait a minute. Let me make sure I understand. So you ended up with eight, but at two you were done. So I was done. <laughs> she was done at two. I was done at two. You wore her down six more times, Della. <laughs> well, I was only going to wear her down once. Okay. And so we had Daniel, but at the time our oldest daughters were in middle school and high school, and so he was going to be an only child, and he was spoiled rotten. And I said, "Yeah, one more, baby. Just let me have one more." How old was he when you did that? Two. Two. I see. So we went we went back and because he has a half sibling somewhere here in San Antonio, we had to use a different donor. So they don't have the same fathers. I see. Um But they and, consider themselves to be full siblings. Yes. Um all of our kids do. Yeah. They're all they they don't look at half or step or, no. or anything like that. They're all true siblings. That's the way that we worked very hard to get to that. It wasn't easy. But they don't, I mean, although they know that they don't have the same parent, you know, biological parents, it doesn't matter to them. Okay. So, Ruth, you had two. I had two. And and then you had two more as a couple through a sperm donor. Yes. And then we're at at four, so we got a long way to go. (laughs) (laughs) Um. A young lady we knew uh, was pregnant and asked us if we would adopt her child. And my first inclination was, I'm 42. I'm too old to start again. Let us 
help you find someone else. Me, I'm like, give me another one. I wanted another one before we found this one. You did? Yes, but she had told me we were done, and I'm like, okay, I can live with that. I can be done. I, I can live with it. I wasn't really, I was still hoping and praying that something would happen. Because you're already bigger than most families. In right, the country, but I, so. I still, I wanted another baby. I really wanted another baby. And I don't know how she was thinking we were going to have this other baby. I, you can't exactly say in a lesbian relationship, oops, honey, look what happened. Because <laughs> the oopses don't just happen. But um, I still thought I'd get it because I, I wasn't done. And we tried very hard to adopt, to help this young lady adopt this child out. And in a lot of ways, my deep relationship with God happened in the, the arrival of this child. I kept trying to think that I could manage this. I could help somebody find this, you know, a perfect family for this baby. But I didn't realize that God was saying, this is your baby. Um, we had her plate. We had this little girl placed in three different houses before she was born. And every one of those families who had wanted babies had ended up saying, no, it's just not the right time. It just doesn't work. It's, this is, this is not going to work. Something came up and there was right. always. And finally I said, all right, God, you've got to give me some direction here. And I believe God said, this little girl is supposed to be yours. And once that happened, I was able to accept it. Um, and now I'm 60, almost 63. And the idea that at 42, I was too old to have a baby <laughs> seems ridiculous because there's nothing that she's needed that we haven't been able to do. Um, Probably some things she wanted that you couldn't do, but nothing that she needed. needed. Well, there were things that she wanted that we refused to do. Exactly. Uh, not, not that we couldn't do, that we refused to do. Um, we like to think that we raise our kids on very stable ground. And we don't want them to have, we always want them to have wants. Because if you don't have wants, there's nothing to lead you into doing things with your life. If all your, if all your wants are met, why be independent? You need to have that, I'd really like to whatever, motivation to make changes in your life. So um, that's what we wanted them to have. So that's how we got number five. Number five. Okay. And then, and then we were done. We were done. We were never going to do this again. We were done. And then... I may need to extend this podcast to <laughs> two, two hours. <laughs> I'm not sure we have enough time. Okay, we're on We're number on number five. Five. Okay. And we had to go to Houston. Well, actually, we went to Houston. We went to um, NASA. We were going to do a weekend trip. We went to Houston. My adopted... Oh, I was adopted as a teenager. Backstory. I was adopted as a teenager. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. But regardless, I was adopted. So that adopted family, my sister lived in Houston. And I had raised this child from the time she was three until she was 12. And I was disowned. And she had three kids, four kids, four kids, and the state took them away. And we didn't know that. We'd gone to Houston and Ruth says to me, you need to go find your sister. And I'm like, this is like the middle of the night. It was and only I, nine o'clock. It wasn't the middle of the night. Was, By the time you got back, it was, it was the, the middle, middle of the night. night. Yes, it was. <laughs> so I'm like, are you out of your mind? 
Are you just crazy? So this is another one where it just came up and, and it was... She said, go find him. And I was like, you're out of your mind. But okay, I'll go looking. I had an address. And the town of Dayton is this little, tiny, nothing town, one light. Blinking light, not even a real light. And so I went looking. And found the address, found... And there was nobody there. The deputy sheriff found me on this road because it was a, a trailer home in the middle of nowhere and asked me what I was doing there. And I told him I was looking for my sister. And he was the one that told me that the kids were in foster care huh. and had been there for a year. So then what did you do? So then we went and found my sister and talked to her and they were going to adopt them all out separately. Um, because... There was some abuse issues, and we won't go into it, but there were some abuse issues. So um, we went to CPS and said, we don't want them out. I, I'm their sister, their aunt, I'll take them. Also, kind of a backstory to that. We had talked about it, and we said, well, what's the one thing that would keep us from taking these kids? And we decided that it was money, that we didn't have enough money. And we had talked, the two of us, about how much money we thought we needed a year to take in three more kids. And we had come up with the number of $5,000. If we had $5,000 more a year, we could bring these three kids home. And not worry about help. And um, the state of Texas decided, without a whole lot of uh, hoopla, that teachers were underpaid and they were going to give teachers each $3,000 a year. <laughs> Well, you don't have to be very good at math to realize that 3000 and 3000 is 6000 and we figured we could do this if we had $5,000. So we figured that was another way of both God and the state of Texas saying, these kids need to come home to you. And we brought them home. Wow. It took yeah. a while because the state, particularly in, in, this, in East Texas, which is fairly conservative, the idea that um, these kids were best off in a home of uh, of lesbians was not easily accepted. But in time, it took about six months of her going to to um, the court every month to prove that this was really the best interest in the kids. And they've been, well, two of them have been with us since. The third one had some difficulties and... It didn't work well. She will always be our child, even though she's chosen that we're not her parents. That doesn't change how we feel. And so it, you did three kids. You adopted the last three children that were your sisters. Well, yes, they came to live with us. We never got to adopt them, but that's another long story. You don't have a long enough podcast for that. But as far as we're concerned, there are kids and it doesn't you really. You took care of them. You raised them. And uh, what year was that you were talking about? 99. It was 99. A lot happened in 99. <laughs> that was a hell of a year. Tell me about that. What else happened? Um, my mother died in September. My brother was murdered. In oh. December. In December. And the day, the the Monday after he died, we got three kids. Oh, my gosh. And so we went from three kids under 10 to six kids under 10. And the first thing we did was go to a funeral. Oh and, you know, any time that I think that my life really sucks, I compare it to 1999, and I am good. <laughs> <You're> good. <laughs> Every year feels really great compared to 99. Yes. But there were good things in 99, too. 
I mean, we, we did get three wonderful children. And, and, you know, we were blessed. But it was a hard year. So how did you do it? I mean, most parents are pulling their hair out with one child or two child, two kids, maybe three. How did you raise? I know that not all eight were in the house at the same time, but you still were parenting. We still had, we had, six, we had six kids, ten and under. And uh, one, one adult child that was living with us at the time. So we had, we've never had more than seven at home at the same time. Um, we have a saying in our house. What do you do when God sends you children? You say thank you. And you do the best you can. Um, some things have to, had to change. Um, Ruth, I, I don't know. I work a lot because I want to make sure that everything that they need, we have. But I couldn't do that if I didn't have her home to take care of the kids. Um, I used to referee. I loved it. But she said to me, you are not leaving me with all these children and going out and having fun. So I gave it up. Um, we decided from the minute we got them that we never wanted any of them to feel that the way they got here made a difference to where they were standing in our family. So we couldn't do it for all. We did it for none. But we did scouts for six. We did dance lessons for six. We did um, anything, you know, if they wanted to do it, we tried very hard to find a way for them to do it. Um, we just, we have, we have a lot of fun. We have a loud household. I know you can't tell that from the, this podcast because uh, they're all napping or whatever right now. But we have a loud household, but we are, this house is so full of love. Um, I can feel it. It's an amazing, it's an amazing place to be. Yeah. It was funny when you were coming, Ruth said to me, honey, the house is so loud. Do we really want to do it here? I'm like, yes, it's our house. She goes, yeah, but you know, it's loud. And usually it is. But right now it's nap time, so we're quiet. <laughs> so, Della, you know, again, I think our, our listeners are probably just amazed that any two parents could raise eight children. But tell me about what it was like to be two women. Because when you started, what year was that? Uh, early 80s? 85. 85. Okay. So when you started, it was a different climate, a different time. You, you must have been under the microscope. There must have been more scrutiny in some ways with two women. Well, we didn't always purport ourselves to be two women. In fact, when we before we moved into this house, we had a duplex with separate addresses with a hole in the middle. So everybody on the outside, it looked like we were just really good friends who shared a duplex. Um, when I went to have Daniel, um, the school district, I, I went to the principal because you're supposed to inform the principal and you're six months pregnant. So I went to the principal and I said, at Christmas, I said, I'm, I'm pregnant. Um, and she said, well, what about the father? And I said, yeah, that's not going to work out at all. And that's all I said. I didn't say anything. I just that's just not going to work out. And she said, well, if you don't have a husband, you don't have a job. I said, okay. So we made up a story that over the Christmas break, I had gotten married. You invented a husband. I invented a husband. Um, Ruth's um, ex-husband was a soldier. And there were some pictures of some of his buddies that she still had. And we just picked one and went, okay, here he is. <laughs> Gave him a name, told the kids, told him I wasn't changing my name because it's hard for children to 
change the name they call you. So I was going to keep my name, but we had gotten married over the break. And, and then I was going to have this baby. And then he got deployed in the Gulf War and he died. Oh, <laughs> poor fella. Did you poor go to that fella. funeral? I did. Okay. <laughs> it was in the summer. It was all right. Okay. And then that next year I changed schools. Wow. So you only really needed that story for a short time. Yeah, I needed it for about six months. Wow. The, th the things that we do to make our families work. And we hid very strongly because as teachers, at that time, we could have lost our job. Really? You couldn't be out? No. Oh, absolutely not. Okay. Um, in fact, they just thought she was my really good friend. That was all. And, and um, then when... Our kids were old enough to go to school, the little ones, when they started school. But right before that, we had told her parents and our older kids that we weren't. I mean, I don't know how our older kids didn't figure it out. They were teenagers, but apparently they were obtuse. And they lost it. It was so upsetting to them that we didn't tell them that, you know, it was, it was awful. Her parents, I think her father said... I cannot believe you're doing this to us. And they were very, for a while, quite upset. Um, that was how long into the relationship? Eight years. Eight years. They didn't. They really didn't know. Um, I don't know how they couldn't have known. I think. I think it's easy to ignore the things that you don't want to know are true. Um, my parents had a really hard time. Now, my parents are. 85 and 88 now. So that, that was, they went to school in the time that homosexuality was considered the result of poor parenting. And my parents were really good parents. My parents were, are, are, are excellent parents. And they really, it made them doubt themselves. Um, what, what had they done wrong? Where, where had they failed that caused me to be this way? Um, also, my parents are, are, are very religious, and um, religion is not terribly supportive of um, homosexual relationships. My brothers, however, I have five brothers. My brothers are amazing. My brothers got together and went to my parents' house and did an intervention. They did. The five of them got together. They went to my parents' house, and they said, You've got to change how you feel about this. Because if Ruth has to choose between you and Della, she's going to choose Della. Like she should. That's how marital relationships are. So if you cause her to choose, you're going to lose her. Is that really what you want to do? And I guess they decided that was not what they wanted to do. We've had some, some stressful times. Now I would say... I, my parents both introduce her as their daughter-in-law. Uh, if it's a family thing, she's invited. Um, they've come to terms with it, but I think society's come to terms with it. And it was easier for my parents when society was more accepting for them to be more accepting. When they didn't feel judged, then it was easier for them to not judge. Her dad once said to me, and oh, a few years ago, I never knew that you were, that you could take such good care of this family. I mean, I don't think I do anything 
outstanding. But he, they were down here for something, and, and I couldn't take off work while they were here. I needed to work. And so I went, you know, I went and did what I do. And he was just amazed that I said, you know, we that we take care of our family. And I, I don't think, for some reason, heterosexual people sometimes want to know who's the man. There isn't one. I'm very happy being female. We're, we, we, work, we work together to be good parents and to be a good couple. And that is not always easy. Was there ever a time in these 33 years that you thought, uh-oh, we might not be together another year? There were twice. The first time is we were the first same-sex couple in Bear County to adopt kids. And it may have been the state, but I know it is in Bear County we were the first. And so the kids' adoption papers, um, Ruth adopted my two biological children, and then we adopted our last, or the other one together. And in our adoption papers, we had to spell out what would happen if we split up. Because a married couple, the judge decides that. Who gets visitation, who, you know. But since we weren't married, there would be no dissolution by the courts. So in order for them to allow us to adopt our kids, we had to sit down and really talk about what would happen when we split up. And that was hard. Difficult conversation. Also, it's like you're tempting fate. What was the other time? Um, along with the delights of menopause came a really bad depression for me. Um, a depression bad enough that not only did I think about suicide, but I had made some serious plans. And I knew that I was not a good partner. I knew that I was not a good parent. I personally thought I was not even a good person uh, and that everybody would be better off without me. And, but there was still a little spark that maybe things could get better. And we, we went to marital, marriage counseling for a while and it was a little better, but that made me realize that I had a problem that was bigger than just our relationship could fix. We worked on our relationship. We communicated better. We talked about things. We continued to make time for each other. We did all those things, but my problem was deeper than that. Um, so I went to... Um, you stopped assigning all of your feelings to the family or the relationship, and you realized there was other... There was, a, there was a problem in me. Um, and it came to a huge rolling head. One night, we, I, I was done. And again, this was 25 years in. I, I was done. And I'm, I'm not a done person. Like I said, I run, but it's to the porch. It isn't away. And I told her, I said, I can't. I'm done. If you're not going to get help, if you're not going to try and get this fixed, I'm done. And I came out here, and the two girls were still, the youngest two were still in high school. And they were here, and this is their home. And I came out and I said, um, I'm out. You can stay here. I will probably be back in a couple of days, but I cannot do this. I have got to go. And I have got to go now before I do something. How did you repair that? How, how did you fix it? When my brain worked better, we could fix it. I could see where we were going wrong. And I had to adjust 
how I felt about things. I was not getting 100% of what I needed from her. But I had to adjust that into, I know she's giving me 100% of what's possible. Of what she has to give. Right. So I have to be grateful for what I have, not angry for what I don't have. If she's giving me 100% of, of her, then that's got to be enough. And so I, I take medicine to this day. We jokingly call it my happy pills. Um, but if that's what I have to take to fix the problems in my brain, not the problems in me as a human being, but the problems in, in me and my brain so that my brain works better, then that's what I have to do. Um, it's important to take care of our mental health the same yes. way we take care of our physical health. And, and again, I know she loves me. And she loves me enough to fix this. We have a rule that neither one of us is allowed to be crazy at the same time. <laughs> you take your turns. If today, you know, I need... It, sometimes our relationship is 50-50. Sometimes it's 90-10. Sometimes it's 100-0. But you know that maybe tomorrow it'll be the other way. And if you need, then you step up for the person that's important to you. You know, I wish I had more time with you all, but can you tell me in your 33 years, is there anything that you would share with other same-sex couples? If you had to kind of distill it down to one piece of advice, what is the secret to resilience, to making it through the hard times? Forgiveness. Not just forgiveness of the other person. Sometimes you have to forgive yourself. And sometimes you have to take that really big step of forgiving society for not being as supportive of same-sex couples as they ought to be. Um, it's getting better. But we're not where we need to be yet. Forgiveness. I, I couldn't have said it any better. Because it's true. You have to forgive yourself. You have to forgive society. You have to figure, forgive other people. And truly forgive. Truly, in your heart, make that turn of you have to forgive the other person and change the way you feel about it. So then you can let it go. So you can let it go. Della, Ruth, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. It's thank you. Thank you for having us. We had a great time. Do you know any LGBT couples with interesting stories and wisdom to share on the show? Jeff would love to meet them. So please contact him through the website at qmarriagementors.com. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great week.